And um, I guess you could say that the thought, the, the message that's on my heart this morning is, <laughs> is a message directed towards this evening. And uh, we're going to be meeting back here um, as a church tonight and as we observe the Lord's Supper. And um, I'm so thankful uh, for that service that we have from time to time in which we come together to observe the Lord's Supper. As I get older and as I grow in my walk with the Lord, um, that sacred ordinance grows greater and greater and more precious and more precious to me to come together with my brothers and my sisters, just as the Lord's disciples did with Him, to take the Lord's Supper. And as I have been preparing my heart now for a couple of weeks for this act of remembrance. I have been looking specifically at this passage here in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians and concerning or considering some of the things that Paul exhorted the Corinthian church concerning the Lord's Supper. And uh, so we're going to pick up the reading here uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 at verse 17. And uh, we're going to read uh, of here Paul's instructions and, and admonition to the Corinthians concerning the Lord's Supper. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning at verse 17. It says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. There must also be heresies, that is, factions among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Paul is telling the Corinthians that I hear that there are divisions or factions among you. And he says, I partly believe it, for it would be necessary that there would be some faction or some division amongst you, that those that are approved, those that are genuine in their conversion and genuine in their doctrine and genuine in their belief, would be made known of those who are not. So he says, I believe that there are these divisions and there are these factions. And he keeps going then in verse 20, he says, When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. He says, What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. To give you a little context here, what's taking place is during this time, the Corinthians, before they would take the Lord's Supper, when the church would come together, they would have a a type of fellowship meal. It's called the agape or a a love feast. And they would come together to, to take of this meal and to take of this feast. And it was just causing chaos concerning the sacred sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so there were some that were eating and others that were being left and some were drunk and it was just causing confusion amongst the church as they were coming together as the Lord had instructed to take of the Lord's Supper. And he was saying, this is not good. Paul is admonishing the church and he's saying, what you're doing, you're not coming together to take the Lord's Supper because if you were, there would be unity amongst you as you came together in one mind with one purpose to commune with God. And he said, you're not doing that. And he says, and I don't praise you in what you're doing. And now he sets straight the instruction concerning the Lord's Supper beginning at verse 23. He says, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. 
And when he had given thanks over the bread, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. And we're going to come back to that verse here in a few minutes. He continues on in verse 27. He says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, that is, in an unworthy manner or irreverently, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he, hath eaten and, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, that is, many have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. I preached on this a couple of weeks ago. Wait for one another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. We'll stop there at the conclusion of chapter 11 of the book of 1 Corinthians. So Paul has given instruction to the Corinthian church concerning the Lord's Supper. And we see this in a couple of parts. He has admonished them against what they're doing. He has instructed them concerning how the Lord first instituted the Lord's Supper with His disciples. And then He has given them further instruction concerning the effects of them not rightly observing this ordinance. I want to speak to you today, our thought would come from verse 26 in particular, about the proclamation of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, like baptism, the two ordinances that have been given to the New Testament church, both of the ordinances of the Lord's church, they preach. They themselves make a proclamation. They themselves demonstrate the message of the gospel. We see in baptism, we know how baptism represents how the Lord was crucified, how we died of sin, and how as the Lord was resurrected, we are brought up from that watery grave that we would be recognizing and exemplifying before the world that we have died to our sins, been made to walk and risen to walk in the newness of life. Baptism is a public proclamation of what the Lord does inwardly when a sinner is saved by His grace. It, it preaches. And so does the Lord's Supper. And what it proclaims is the sacrificial atoning death of the Lord. When we take of, of the Lord's Supper, when we take of the bread and we drink of the fruit of the vine, we are proclaiming of the death of the Lord. The sacrificial hope of the whole world. The Lord's Supper preaches. Now, I want to talk a little bit before we get into what's being preached by the Lord's Supper about how we take it. Here at Faith Church, we observe the Lord's Supper four times a year. And, and there's other places, there's other churches that observe it less often. And there's other places that observe it more often. 
I want you to know that we don't see outlined for us a, a specific timeline for how often we are supposed to observe the Lord's Supper, only that we are instructed to do so, and as often as we, we would do so, that we would do so how? We would do so in remembrance of the Lord. There is a purpose for which we are to take the Lord's Supper, and it is to stir our hearts and our minds in remembrance of the sacrifice of the Lord. You see, we grow in this life sometimes, we, we, we grow cold, we, we grow indifferent, we grow frustrated by the circumstances that are around us, and, and we begin to reach this point where we want to take control over all the things that we see, and we want to, to try to take upon ourselves all that the, that the world would have against us, as though somehow we can fight against it, and we can defeat it, and the Lord tells us from time to time to take the Lord's Supper that we might remember that He has given Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And that remembering that sacrifice, our hearts might be made to draw, draw closer to Him and away from the world and away from how we think we might be able to get the upper hand on the world because we know that in the Lord's death and in His resurrection that Christ has defeated death and He's defeated the world. And so we might be drawn out of this world and closer to the Lord as our hearts are stirred in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus. It is good for us to take the Lord's Supper and that we might be mindful of what we are doing and who it's about and the sacrifice that God has accepted. I'm going to talk more about those things in just a minute, but I need to give a couple of instructions concerning the Lord's Supper to the church. One, we are instructed to do this. It's not an optional thing. We are instructed to do this after the manner that Jesus did it. And we know how when He came together on the eve of His death, and, and they had came to observe the Passover meal, but how while they were observing the Passover meal, Jesus took this bread and He blessed it, and how He passed it to His disciples and told them to eat, that it was representative of His body. And how he took of the, the fruit of the vine, he took of the cup, and he drank after he had blessed it and said, Take, and, and all of you drink from this cup, because this is representative of my blood. That he changed the nature of the Passover meal and instituted the Lord's Supper there with his disciples that night. And we observe it in like manner as he did. And we do it because he told us to. Now, there are other places in Scripture where Jesus gives us things that we are to do in a similar manner. We see how Jesus washed His disciples' feet and He told us to do as He has done unto His disciples. And He was teaching us there about being humble and about in love and in, in, in humility serving one another. And that's how we're supposed to serve one another is as Jesus served His disciples. He said, do as I have done unto you. In that case, in the Lord's Supper, He says, do this in remembrance of Me. Do you see the difference in the language? Do as I have done to you and this do in remembrance of Me. That's the distinction of the ordinance. 
that we see. That in like manner as Christ observed the Lord's Supper with His disciples, that we would observe it together as His body, as the church. Now let me say something about this. You need to be here. If you've been saved by God's grace, if you are a member of Faith Church, in good standing, in good conscience before the Lord, you need to be here tonight to observe the Lord's Supper. Because Christ has instructed and commanded us to do it. You might say, well, Derek, you're oversimplifying it. And I might say, number one, I'm not. Jesus said it. Number two, what can be a higher reason to do something than Jesus saying to do it? (laughs) I shouldn't have to make any other persuasive arguments concerning this that we are to do it. So we need to come together tonight and observe the Lord's table. To observe the Lord's Supper together. Now I want to say something else about this and about the manner in which we are to eat. He says that we are to do it in a worthily way. To to do it in a worthy manner. To do it with reverence. And that we would have a good conscience before the Lord as we would do it. He says to examine yourself that you are taking the Lord's Supper rightly. And he notes that there are some that were sickly and have even died because they did not take of the Lord's Supper in a reverent way. And he goes on further. And you might say, well, Derek, what's he talking about? He goes on further to explain. We read it today. He said that this was a, a chastening that was upon the people because they were not observing the Lord's Supper with the right reverence. There is a way in which when we come together to observe the Lord's Supper, we are are, are at the pinnacle of our service to the Lord. That there is no greater sacred service that we have than to come together in communion as one body in Christ together around the table. If there is anything that we would take seriously and reverently and that we would honor and hold in esteem as a church, it should be the Lord's table. Jeremy? We should honor and revere the Lord's table. We are to do it in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now let me talk about that sacrifice for a minute. The the reason why we hold the table in such high regard, the reason why we hold the Lord's Supper in such high regard is because it is representative of the sacrifice of our Savior on our behalf. It is about the substitutionary death of Christ. It is about the atonement that Jesus Christ offered on our behalf. It is about the propitiation that Jesus was was made towards God for us. The sacrificial death of Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for sin. And it is worthy of our honor. It is worthy of our reverence. And it is worthy of our esteem when we come together to remember the sacrifice. So let me talk about this sacrifice for for just a couple of minutes. One, I want to note that when we come together around the Lord's table, the bread does not become the literal body of Jesus. It is representative. It is symbolic. Neither does the fruit of the vine become the literal blood of Jesus. It is representative of His blood. It is 
a symbol of his blood. And if you ask me about that, I would point you to the fact that Jesus was bodily with his disciples in the body, present with the disciples, when he broke the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body. The disciples who were around that table that night understood what he meant. He was there with them bodily, and he was breaking bread, giving them symbolically. And so this is not the, the literal body and blood of Jesus, but it is a representative reminder of the broken body and of the poured out blood of Jesus. For us to recognize the broken body of Jesus is to recognize that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It is to recognize that He is God incarnate. It is to recognize that He came and though He was born of a virgin, He was holy man. He was the God-man. And He lived and He dwelt amongst the people who lived during that time for some 33 and a third years. And we read and we know of all the accounts of His righteousness. And we see how in Him there was no vile thought or deed ever committed. There was no vile word that was ever spoken. That He was wholly good and He was wholly righteous and He was perfect and without blemish. And we know how that in His body He was seen of those who were around Him and He had interaction. He was a real man. And being a real man, he, though He was perfect and He was righteous in all of His deeds, He did not have the inherited sin of a father for the Holy Spirit overshadowed and came upon Mary and she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. He did not inherit the sin nature that I have inherited from my dad and that he inherited from his dad and that my children have inherited from me. He was distinct in His righteousness. He was holy and without spot. But He was fully a man. And He was subject into all like temptations and passions as we are. Yet in Him there was no sin. And yet this sinless man, this righteous man, this perfect man was made to die the death of a criminal, of a sinner. He stood in my place. He died the death that I deserved and His body there was broken. You can read and you can learn of what took place there as He was tried as he was, was made to, to be mocked in, in, his, in his trial, all the things that were done unto him as they, as they plucked his beard, as they plaited a crown of thorns, as they placed it upon his head, as they were to whip him with, with that cat of nine tails, and how it pulled literally the flesh off his back, and how his body was broken. Exhausted. Been up all night. <laughs> Beaten. Treated as worthless. <laughs> Though He Himself was with the Father when the universe was created. And after being beaten and exhausted, He was made to carry a cross 
through the streets down to a hill called Golgotha. We refer to it sometimes as Calvary. And I can just picture him as he was made to carry that cross. Because I want you to know as his body which had been beaten and was broken and was just nearly falling down in exhaustion as he was struggling with that cross before they made Simon the Cyrene to come and to help him. Not only was he carrying the cross as he was making his way to the place that he would die, but he was carrying upon him your sins and mine. His broken body was carrying my sins and yours to the place that at once he would give up his life for me and for you. When he got to that place, they laid that cross on the ground and they took him, they placed him over it. And we know of how it was that they drove those nails down through his hands, likely down here at the bottom of his wrist, and how they drove that nail through his feet. Then they lifted up that cross into a hole that was in the ground. And I can just about picture as he was being lifted up, and, and I don't know if you ever had that type of feeling where you're being lifted up on something like that, but it's a it's an odd feeling. And he's being lifted up, and all of a sudden that cross hits the vertical points, it drops down into that hole, and his whole body is made to sag. There, cross. This righteous man, in the prime of his life, was being broken. For me and for you. Do you see why it's worthy of our remembrance? Do you see why it's distinct and how we are to observe this? This is not just some ordinary part of, of everyday things that we would do, but it deserves all respect and humility as we would come to remember the broken body of Christ. And then we remember also His poured out blood. I want to make a couple of comments quickly about the nature of how His blood was poured out, but also the significance of it being poured out. One is that it was indeed shed in its entirety. Every bit of it that was shed was shed for you and for me. I talked already about how they had plated a, a crown of thorns. They had placed it upon His head. When we talk about them placing it upon his head, I don't want you to get the idea that it was just neatly set on his head like the crowning of Miss America at a beauty pageant. They had twisted this crown of thorns together and they rammed it down into his head. And I can just picture his face there. His blood was made to rush over his face. The blood that was poured out before he was ever put on trial there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know of how His sweat became His drops of blood. And surely we know as He was beaten, how He was made to bleed. But as He gave up the ghost there on that cross, Scripture tells us that they took of a, of, of a, of a sphere, a sphere, and how they thrusted it up into His side. And it said that outpoured water and outpoured blood. His blood was shed on the cross for me and you. I want to say something about that. 
They didn't know it at the time, but when they pierced his side with that spear, it was in fulfillment of specific prophecy that no bone of his would be broken, and no bone was. But they pierced his side and out poured blood and water. And there have been some that have reasoned that Jesus shed a drop of blood for everybody in the whole world. But I want you to know that I don't believe that. I don't think that people that say that even mean it how they say it. I believe that every ounce of blood that Jesus shed, He shed it for me. And that every ounce of blood that Jesus shed, He shed it for you. It took the full death of Christ as a sacrifice before God for Him to accept it as an atonement for me and for you. A drop of blood wouldn't do it. It took the life of Christ being poured out there at Calvary. And He poured it out willingly. And He poured it out for me. And He poured it out for you. And you might say, well, Derek, why did this matter so much that Jesus would put it in our remembrance forever? That we would continue to observe it now some 2,000 years later. What is the significance of it? And I want you to know that as we would look to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, as we would look to the New Testament, this New Testament has been made by the blood of Jesus. I want you to know when we see that the power in Christ, we see the power in the blood. It is the blood that has to be applied to the heart of a sinner that we might be made right with God. It is the blood which we preach. It is the blood which we proclaim is that which is sufficient that any sinner plunged beneath the blood of Jesus will emerge clean. And you say, well, Derek, how is that so? And I don't have time to get into the depths of the understanding that we can look back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament and apply here to the New. But let me look to one thing. The very thing that the disciples that came together with Jesus that night to observe. They came together to observe the Passover. And you can go and you can read about this in the book of Exodus, about those plagues that God sent on Egypt as Pharaoh was hardening his heart again and again and again and refusing to let his people go. But then this tenth plague came, and it was unlike the others, for now it's going to be required of the death of the firstborn of every family, except for those of the children of Israel, for those Hebrews that would strike the doorpost with the blood of a lamb without spot and without blemish. God said when the death angel passes by and he sees the blood applied, he'll pass over and you will be spared. (laughs) Jesus now is the blood that's applied to the heart of the sinner that we might be spared from the condemnation of hell that we otherwise would rightly deserve. God looks upon the heart of a man. He looks upon the heart of a woman. And if He sees there the blood of His Son that's been applied now by the Holy Spirit, His judgment has been fulfilled not by us, but by His Son. And we are given right unto heaven not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. It is worthy of our remembrance because God has accepted it as payment in full for our sin debt. 
We used to sing a song, and still do maybe every now and then, about how the old account was settled long ago. And I want you to know that the, the truth, the idea of that song, it's so accurate. Because if we were to, to look at the balance sheet and you would see the list of my sins down the side of my debts and it would be a long list and there would be nothing that I could do to make payment in full before God for all of my sins. But God has accepted the substitutionary death of His Son as payment in, uh, in full for my sins and for all that would come to believe and trust in the name of Jesus. Today, I want you to know I am saved because of the death of Christ. I am saved because of His broken body. I am saved because of His poured out blood. We recall and we hold in great esteem and we remember the sacrificial death of Jesus every time we come around the table. You see why it's so important? Do you see why it's worthy of our esteem more? Do you see why it preaches? It proclaims that Jesus Christ bled and died for your sins. Do you hear me? There's no greater thought that a man can have than that. That Jesus Christ bled and died for your sins. Earlier I said that I desire to live my life for the Lord. And if you were to ask me, Derek, why do you desire to live your life for the Lord? I would answer you and I would tell you, because He bled and He died for me. What else am I supposed to do? What else could I do? This man has paid a debt that I could not pay. I owe my life to Him. He has ransomed me. He has purchased me out of the death and despair of my sin. And having purchased me, He now rightly has lordship over my life. And if you want to know what He paid to purchase me, He paid His life to redeem me. That's why I call Him Lord. That's why I call Him Master. Because He has rightful ownership of my life. S.M. Lockridge said, I love to call Him my Lord. And I do too. Because He has given me a pardon. As Brother Billy Moran once said, full and free. He has purchased me and has bought me with His own blood. So I want you today, church, and I want to encourage you to consider already about this sacrificial death of the Lord. Some would say, well, why doesn't Faith Church observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday? And I want you to know I have no problem at all with the places that do. But... There is something that places a higher esteem and importance when we do it a little bit more periodically than that. It's not just part of everyday service, of every week service, but it has a high regard here at Faith Church. 
And I want you to know, so long as I have anything to do with it, it'll remain that way. Because the death and the blood of Jesus, His broken body and His atoning blood, it has set me free. It has washed me white, whiter than snow. I stand before God today righteous, not in my own account, but because of what Jesus has done. And there are so many songs that talk about this sacrifice. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath the flow lose all their guilty stains. There is power, power, wondrous working power in the blood of the Lamb. It's His blood that has made us one. One in power. One as a family. His blood has made us one. (laughs) But perhaps my favorite is, oh, what a Savior. Oh, hallelujah. He gave His life's blood for you and for me. I praise God for the sacrifice of His Son. Let me say one last thing. I've already talked about the direction of this sacrifice, the direction of this atonement. And I want you to know it was Godward. It was God who accepted in full the work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. All the acceptance that is at work in salvation, it's by God and it comes from Jesus. Not the part of man, it's the part of God. And as a result of that, as a result of that atonement that has been made Godward, we are the beneficiaries of having right standing with God. If you wonder why this sacrifice, if you say, well, Derek, this sacrifice was accepted by God, what does it have to do with me? I have insurance at work. And at work, I have to note who my beneficiaries are. Who is it that as a result of my being insured by this company also receives the benefit? Who else is the beneficiary? Jesus made an atonement towards God. And we're the beneficiaries. We have the benefit of the atonement by the work of Jesus Christ, of His death and the sacrifice that was made on the cross of Calvary. Brother Brett, can we sing, Oh, what a Savior, this morning? I want to encourage you. If there are things in your life that you're facing, you're struggling through, the sins of your life are just overcoming you. Listen, I want you to know this this sacrifice of, of Jesus that I've talked about, I have tasted of it, I have known it, and I have found it to be true. And I can recommend it to you. And whatever those things are that you have found yourself to be overcame by, you're struggling through, that you're dealing with, and your sin just seems like it's on every side, and it's confounded you, and the weight of your sin will not let you go. There is a place you can go where you too can come to know of this benefit. You can come to know and can taste of the effects of the atonement that was made towards God. You can come and you can learn of what it is to be free. 
you can come and understand fully of what this sacrifice is all about by placing your trust in the one who has made it. So I want to invite you to stand to your feet. If the Lord's dealing with you in some way, you feel the draw of God on your heart in some way, I want to encourage you to come and seek after Him. We have this bench up front and it's reserved for, for sinners and saints alike to come and to seek relief from that that they're carrying. To come and seek relief from their sins and all that is overcoming them. This place is a good place for you to come and seek peace for your soul. To come and seek after the Lord. And here's the best part. Scripture tells us that those that seek after Him happily will find Him. I want to encourage you today. Seek the Lord. Seek after the Lord.